Hello, this is Father David Nix on the Padre Peregrino podcast. This is Theology and Current Events number 48 called Daily Leadership with a Navy SEAL. I'm joined today by my friend of about six years, Mike. Mike, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Father. And how are you this afternoon? Doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us again. Mike's been on this podcast a couple times before, and I want to give Mike CV here. Mike's a retired career Navy officer, naval officer who served 27 years in the Naval Special Warfare, which is the formal community designation for the U.S. Navy SEALs. During his time in uniform, he led or commanded SEAL platoons, task units, assault teams, squadrons, strike forces, and joint task forces during 13 deployments, seven of them to combat. He did three tours at Naval Special Warfare Development Group and was among the first special operators to fight in Afghanistan. Besides combat, he also developed and deployed highly classified special undersea capabilities and clandestine intelligence gathering activities in theaters as diverse as Bosnia and Southeast Asia. As a senior officer, he served as the operations officer for a deployed joint special operations task force of 5,500 personnel in 27 countries across the U.S. in support of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations including the fight against both ISIS and Al-Qaeda in the Middle East, as well as the MILF insurgency in the Southern Philippines. Mike has been awarded both the Silver Star and Bronze Star for Valor in Combat. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, where he graduated with distinction, top 2% of the class, also holds a master's degree from the Naval Postgraduate School. His proudest accomplishments is maintaining a marriage of 27 years and a family through the many decades of deployments, war, family moves, and associated pressures and stresses. After military retirement, he worked for several years as a leadership and management consultant on Wall Street. Now, as a semi-retired consultant, Mike has recently advised organizations as diverse as the Philadelphia Eagles, Merrill Lynch, Team Liquid from Esports, World Cricket, and the USA Rugby Team on various leadership and performance challenges. He's currently semi-retired and living in the Rocky Mountain West. I'll tell my listeners, getting that CV was like pulling teeth. And, uh, you know, Mike and the old school SEALs, they don't like to brag. Um, why is that, Mike? You said something offline about quiet professionalism and an understatement off the air before we hit the record button. That's our ethos, Father. We, uh, we, that's, that's what we state we're about. Um, letting deeds speak louder than, uh, than words uh, and not having to sort of beat your chest about uh, what you've done. People who who know what you've done, know it, and that's really all that matters. So I've always been uncomfortable putting lots of stuff down on paper like that. But you, but you made me, Father. I made you do it. I, I really did twist his arm, and uh, you can certainly tell me if we're not going to discuss this because I didn't tell you we're going to ask. I was going to ask this, but can you tell us about that Silver Star and Bronze Star in combat? Uh, the Silver Star was a, an early deployment to Afghanistan, in which it was still very much. Uh, uh, there was still very much a war going on, and so there was it was pretty kinetic. And I lost uh, I lost three of my operators, and four were wounded. Uh, and so it was for gallantry in action through a course of several operations. Uh, Bronze Star was for for a later uh, combined a later deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm sorry for your losses, and what what heroic service from you and the other uh, teams guys there. Thank you for that. Well, what, one of the things we were going to call this podcast is why mortification leads to happiness. But I think what we're going to do is call it daily leadership. Um, 
One of the things that I've noticed is a lot of us have had a hard time staying as virtuous after these lockdowns as before. I'm not even going to blame it on on the virus. I'm going to blame it on the lockdowns, the major psyop we all underwent. Um, and it does seem that a lot of us have had a harder time being virtuous, whether you're a diocesan hermit or a, a father of children or a mother of children or a diocesan priest. And so one of the things I like we're going to actually talk about today is um, just leadership in the home, leadership in the parish. And Mike's going to do most of the talking today, but I'm hoping my listeners can maybe just give me a few minutes to set up another podcast I heard. I was listening to a Huberman podcast with Dr. Anna Lemke. Uh, Huberman's a neuroscientist at Stanford. She's a psychiatrist at Stanford. And the podcast I was listening to came out about a year ago, but I just listened to it this week. It's called Understanding and Treating Addiction. Um, now, I don't get the sense either of these two are believers, but they made some great points on how basically how the brain aims for homeostasis between pain and pleasure, uh, especially on these issues of discipline versus social media. And then also they talked about living in reality instead of living in a fake world of passion. This Dr. Lemke, she was featured in the movie Social Dilemma, which discussed the issue in social media uh, that if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. They also make the point in this podcast that modern life is boring, ba basically because our survival needs are met. And so a lot of times we have to make up our own meeting, meaning in life. And then we also make up our own sufferings in life. We make ourselves to be victims. And then addiction fills that boredom with, well, apparent excitement, but high highs. And then this drops the baseline dopamine levels. So one of the things I learned from this podcast, every hit of pleasure is balanced by almost immediate pain, but it's often subconscious. Uh, for example, let's say you're on Facebook, you do an hour of scrolling on social media, and then you stop that. Why does your brain, your heart, your mind, your soul, whatever you want to call it, tell you that you want to get back on? And then when you don't, there's there's sort of this sense of pain in the whole thing. Well, they gave a, a biochemical explanation of this that there's a downregulation of dopamine receptors. And what happens is leads to a dopamine deficit, which can become chronic, which is basically anxiety or depression. Um, at a real like micro level, a hangover is a perfect example of that. Um, and so one of the things I want to ask Mike, there's going to be, we're, we're really not sure where we're going to take this whole discussion. We'll probably go in a Catholic direction because Mike was actually my parishioner at one point. He's also a traditional Catholic. Forgot to mention that in his CV. Uh, but again, we're going to title this today, uh, Daily Leadership with a Navy SEAL. And Mike, I don't think you're on social media, but one of the things that a lot of us have struggled with who are on social media is, especially the past couple of years, life goals and, and discipline. And when people hear addiction, they think of really big ones like crack cocaine or pornography or whatever else. But one of the really interesting things here in this podcast with Huberman and Lemke is small addictions, so-called small addictions like social media um, can really take a toll on dopamine. Dopamine isn't just the pleasure uh, drug. It's also the motivation drug. It's also the motivation neurotransmitter uh, that I got from this podcast. Um, so not only big addictions like crack, but even social media, um, any advice for people out there scrolling too much, people with smaller addictions like gambling, um, how do you kick that and enter into a disciplined life again? Since we're in the subject of social media, I think, I think we're going to stick to this idea of uh, addiction to information. Um, that seems to be 
Huberman and, and Lemke did talk about that a great deal. The substance abuse, uh, the gambling stuff is, it's the same in principle, but it's a different category of treatment. So I want to talk about just addiction to information because I think it is what most people feel and don't always know where it's coming from. You, um, you reference the highs that come from scrolling through Facebook or social media. Uh, and then, you know, the drop off when, when that goes away, I think it's much bigger than that. And I think it's much bigger than just in the last two years. I, um, I distinctly remember once email became the thing, uh, in the military in kind of the mid to late nineties, it, it pretty quickly displaced, uh, substance of communication. And now your work, your work sort of platform became your email inbox. And that was just email. Multiply that by where we are today. You can see why your average person is so absolutely overwhelmed with information that uh, he or she may not, may not realize it, and may not understand how important it is to take steps to counteract that. Uh, and I'll just go back. I mean, just, I'll just paint a bigger picture. I mean, really, it's sort of a philosophical sense. Yeah, the desire to know is our original sin. Mm. The desire to know. Uh, that is what caused the fall in the garden. And I think, uh, I think right now we are getting what we wanted. <laughs> we are learning the hard way that there's a reason why. There is a reason why God limits what we can know. We just can't handle it. Mm. That's a brilliant insight. I mean, we give ourselves this pass. We give ourselves this excuse to know everything in the church crisis. You and I have talked off the air a lot about the church crisis. We're not happy with, with what's going on in the church, but somehow we think us knowing it's going to help the situation, huh? I totally agree. I, so one of the things about the Huberman pod, podcast you referenced, I mean, I, I agree with you. Their, their insights are limited to neuroscience. And there is, of course, a whole kind of a whole cult of, uh, medicine and science, which denies that there's any other solution or explanation for things. I think they're in that category. They still come up with some good insights. And uh, Dr. Lemke at one point uh, offers a solution. And she says, do, do what's put right in front of you at the moment. Well, that, that sounds familiar. You know, she won't put it in any kind of uh, any terms other than just practical terms. But you and I have talked about that quite a bit about that's right about Stop worrying about the ecclesiological, uh, ecclesiastical situation, sorry, or this or that, Bishop, Pope, Cardinal. What's put in front of you right now to do? That's uh, right. Some of my listeners might remember I had you speak to our youth group about six years ago, and uh, you showed up in your whites, your navy whites. And uh, I remember I raised my hand. Some of the listeners might remember this because I think I mentioned in one of our previous podcasts. I said, well, what really what really determines who makes it through buds? And um, you could see the gears were cranking. You may have had a certain answer during the youth group, but then afterwards I kind of cornered you again on it. And you said, you thought about it. And then you did come up with an answer. It was psychologically. I mean, there's a lot of factors who makes it through buds and who doesn't. But one of the factors that you mentioned was who's able to accomplish the task at hand. And as I was listening to the Huberman Lemke podcast, they said something, you know, Huberman who's done work with the SEAL teams also, um, he's been on Jocko's podcast. He made the same point that SEALs will often do, they just scan the environment for what needs to be done right in front of them, right at the moment. Even if it, the example that Huberman used twice was taking out the trash. It wasn't, um, you know, putting on night vision goggles. It was, ta it was taking out the trash. And I thought that was a fascinating 
uh, appraisal of what has to happen. And then Dr. Lemke made the, the point, you know, everyone says to go through life, you have to find your passion. She's like, not really. Um, a lot of times life is just living discipline and boredom. My word's not hers. I'm, I'm kind of using Catholic terms extrapolated from two Stanford people who don't seem to be believers, but it was essentially uh, living the day to day life. What is put in front of you, even if it's, if it's in a state of boredom, um, that's what it means to win at life, kind of a overused term winning at life. But am I right on that? That seals are, are not just good when they're, you know, climbing through sewers with uh, uh, night vision on, but they're also just good at the task at hand and taking the trash out. I remember that discussion. And since then I, I went back and talked to our selection assessment folks in Coronado. And, uh, and, and we do think that that is really the only explanation we offer people uh, that differentiates those who succeed and those who fail. It's not limited to SEAL training. Uh, there are you know, plenty of hard things that happen in and out of the military selection processes. The Rangers have them, Green Berets, et cetera. But it does seem to be that those who can compartmentalize, control their mind, their fear, and their anxiety, instead of thinking about the miserable beach run that's going to happen after lunch and then the obstacle course after that, all you got to think about it is, you know, the surf passage evolution you're doing right now. Because once your mind gallops on all the horrible things that are going to happen later, the difficult things, you'll just cut your own motivation right out from under you. You just can't, you can't handle that knowledge. And interestingly, in SEAL training, it was, in many ways, it was, uh, it was us officers, many of whom came from the Naval Academy, who had been through enough training to know that this is a system. It's a game. You know, they can only push so far. How have they built the game? What's next? What can they do next? We were, in many ways, the most vulnerable to, um, to gaming the system and defeating ourselves because of our knowledge of training systems. Now, in the, in the, in the case, we were always shocked, never failed to be shocked by just how far past any limits our instructors blew in the training. It was like, they can't do that to us. So, yes, not only that, but... <laughs> so that, that is... Beyond that. <laughs> So that's a that's an interesting aspect. Now, there's something else uh, that you mentioned, and that is uh, this idea that uh, well, life's just hard because it's boring. It's boring. First off, I think that's a reflection of a certain bubble that uh, these folks might live in. Uh, but I think the truth, the truth that they are talking about is, I guess our our dopamine bar, so to speak, our threshold. In many ways, we we have artificially raised it to the point where it's really difficult now to be interested in things that don't don't kind of shoot your interest level and your uh, stimulation to the max immediately everything else becomes sort of boring but you know in contrast let's just take a prisoner in solitary confinement mm. who's been in solitary confinement for some period of time you know a bug crawling across the floor of his cell you can imagine that would be the utterly most interesting thing and it could consume him for a half hour. Mm. Where, where is that bar that you set it in terms of your, uh, your stimulation level? And one of the dangers of, uh, of that rapid sort of uh, social media scrolling kind of thing that you described is the bar continues to get set at high levels that needs ever more, uh, you know, kind of ever more uh, infusions of, uh, of stimulating ideas, thoughts, pictures, etc. Just, I mean, that's just, I don't know if that's science. That's just my impression of what yeah. happened. 
No, and they they did give some science behind behind the whole thing. This is they describe it as the down regulation of the dopamine receptors, meaning every hit that you have, um, the recept your 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 cells are told by the brain to have less uh, receptors on on each cell, meaning it's going to take a higher flood of dopamine, meaning it's going to take a higher high. So you know if if it's if someone's addiction is poor, and that means it's going to have to get crazier and crazier everything that they look at and keep this pg-13 i mentioned to you uh before we recorded every psycho killer every or every uh almost every serial killer started with really basic porn and then it had to go higher and higher into more kinky more violent more pediatric items this is what they all say and then there's a there's a science behind it that when you have a down regulation of dopamine receptors you have to have something uh more intense to spike that but I think, you know, to bring this back to maybe not serial killers, there's probably very few serial killers listening to this podcast. Just what you said about information is really fascinating that um, how often do we need the next spike of like trouble in the government or trouble in the church or whatever else to to be outraged uh, at all the time? And so I really like what you're saying about this. And this is also ties into the boredom that a lot of times I have what I describe as like paralysis analysis. I'll look at 50 things I have to do in a day. Um, and, you know, in the old, right, we have eight sets of Psalms. I try to do mental prayer, exercise, mass, rosary, all this, and then all these emails. And I look at all of it. And then I just scroll on Facebook for an hour uh, because I think maybe I'll have more energy after scrolling for an hour to do these 50 things instead of just, you know, as you said, doing the task at hand. And so um, what would you suggest to people uh, who get that paralysis analysis? They look at so many things they have to do. How do you how do you beat the paralysis analysis and just jump into working on that boring to do list every day? Yeah, that's a it's a first off, it's not easy. Uh, and so anyone who's who will tell you there's an app for that, you know, <laughs> run away because it's not true. You have to establish you know what's happening and establish habits that defeat some of the more self-defeating habits we might have. I, um, I know everyone's had the experience of, uh, you know, consuming outrage information for a period of time and then just feeling like I'm just sitting there and feeling like I've got nothing right now. I can't get up. Mm-hmm. I can't want to look at this stuff anymore. I'm just deflated. Uh, when you get to that point, uh, it's, it's the real danger zone. Mm. You, uh, I guess the advice I'd give you in those cases, just get up and move. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> just get up and move. I mean, that's, that's kind of simple to say. But I, I think, Father, we could talk a little bit maybe about a kind of a systematic approach to, um, again, we're talking about information here, to, to sort of limiting your consumption of bad information and sort of maximizing your consumption of important information. Mm. Yeah. How do you, where do you draw the line on that? Because uh, a lot of people, think we need to know and in some sense we do need to know what's going on in the government and the church right so how do you draw that line or maybe we don't i mean my great grandma from ireland she said a a soap opera is if you leave a soap opera for three months you come back and it's the exact same three months later And i feel like that's the same thing in church news and state news if you left everything for three months we'd still come back and we'd be very disappointed in the white house and the vatican so i mean maybe there's no news i don't know that experience is exactly right. I mean, people who have been off, been on long camping trips or whatever, come back 
jump back onto their different websites and their social media, realize, oh, it's just the same stuff. It's a different day because it's designed to yeah. get you to pay attention. Um, here, here's, I mean, here's what I have done just as a habit. Uh, first off, every, every seven to 10 days, um, I do essentially an executive session with myself. And that's a calendar and a set of tasks I know I have to do. And I thoughtfully prioritize each one. I'm going to focus on this, this, this. I need to get this done. Take the initial actions on this. Sounds kind of wonky, but I force myself to focus on it. And unless there's a crisis or something urgent, I don't let myself get distracted. Now, a certain personality, that's a certain personality it takes to do that. I understand that. Everyone operates that way. But, uh, but, that's, but that's what I do. I orient all the information I need to get towards the tasks and the priorities I have to at hand. And, and some days, some weeks, those are, hey, the priority this week is, is honoring the Feast of the Assumption. Wow, really? Or something like that. That's, that's awesome. That's my priority. And so if it detracts from the vigil, from the penance, from the whatever, then it's, it's really not that important information to me. I love it. So that's just an example. Uh, on consumption of social media, I mean, I listen. It's insidious. It really is. I'm not. It is a really difficult thing. It's it's hard to tell people you don't have to know that once they're given the option to know. It's mm. just really hard and recognize that it takes discipline to uh, just to overcome it. I limit my consumption to just the Wall Street Journal in the morning. And I'll I'll read the the main section uh, and a quick scan of headlines just to see what's coming at me, if anything that's coming at me. Yeah, uh, that I know. Um, and after that, for the rest of the day, I will, you know, person to person emails, I will pay attention to, you know, texts I'll pay attention to, but really not much else. But I realize I'm tempted all the time to do the opposite. That's right. And, and I can, I can tell, sometimes I can tell how virtuous someone is based on how long it takes them to text me back. And I notice you'll always get back to every text I send you, but sometimes it's 12 to 24 hours. When that happens to someone, I realize, okay, this is someone not attached to their phone, but still virtuous enough to get back. Um, I do like how you bring theology to this whole thing, that really the original sin was curiosity. That's a really interesting way to see that, that in, you know, in some sense, we're perpetuating the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, needing information overload, um, even, to, even to our current situation uh, today. As far as the task at hand, I do want to make a 20 years ago, this might sound a little bit hokey too, but I, there's an analogy that I heard 20 years ago. I'm just not very good at it, but I'm going to suggest it to our listeners. Imagine if you had three fourths of a pint of beans and three fourths of a pint of rice, and you wanted to get that into a bigger glass that was 1.25 pints. Turns out if you pour in the rice first, uh, that three fourths of a pint, and then, and then pour in three-fourths of a, of a pint of beans, it overflows. But if you put the beans in first, and then the rice, the rice will all fit in between the beans, and it'll actually fit in there. And so we got this at Focus Summer Training 20-plus years ago. And the, the whole point of it was if you do the big, hard stuff at the beginning of your day, you're going to uh, succeed a lot more at getting the small to-do list when you have less energy the rest of the day that can fit in, you know, all these little tasks that are like five or 10 minutes. So for me personally, my big ones is mass mental prayer exercise. But because those take a little, at least the shift between all of those takes more mental 
power. A lot of times I don't follow this and I just jump into the small rice, the small to-do list. And then by the afternoon, I try to do the big beans, the big goals, mass, mental prayer, exercise. And I'm too tired because not because I'm physically tired. I'm too tired because I've used the mental energy on the rice, the little to-dos that I shouldn't. So I love what you say about prioritizing that every seven to 10 days. It's, it's, it's not exactly, but it's related to the rice and beans thing I'm describing. The, uh, <laughs> what you just described is doing the, the big hard things first. It reminds me of uh, lots of things that get taught in executive seminars. And that's a reference to something called the Eisenhower matrix. Hmm. Uh, if uh, you can easily look it up, but essentially it's yes, former president Dwight D. Eisenhower and general Dwight D. Eisenhower came up with it, but in a two by two matrix, he illustrated the conundrum between doing urgent things and doing important things. Okay. Uh, and it'll be self-explanatory when you see it, but it's, but it's what, uh, at least in the corporate business world today, so many managers do exactly that. It's easier to answer the email or handle the little personnel problem than it is to do strategic planning, budget planning, or make difficult decisions. So what do you do first? Those things which are seemingly urgent, not so important. And you defer and sometimes never get to the really important things. Yep. So Mike, I like what you're describing about Ike, important versus urgent. How would you apply that to just your normal Catholic family man out there, normal Catholic housewife? How do they parse out their day with the, the Ike analogy or the rice and beans analogy? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, given the choice between paying attention to your energetic two-year-old or, uh, or focusing on reorganizing your tool collection or, uh, or, or screw, you know, screw, screws and hardware collection in your garage, how many fathers, for the sake of peace, uh, made, made defaults to the latter when they know they should be paying attention to their two-year-old? You know, mothers, too, have their own thing. I mean, it's, it's always not always justified. Sometimes there's real things that have to be done. Sometimes it's a time and place for that. But I think maybe it'd be good for everyone to ask himself or herself, do I do that? Um, do I put off those important things like paying attention to, to the, those, you know, those very important things? Just or wife spouse, uh, children. The other thing I see often, which just, it just breaks my heart. Uh, you see it everywhere. You can be Catholic, non-Catholic, you can be, but I see parents in public with their children on any kind of venue. And, uh, the parents are on their phones. They are scrolling on their phones and the kids are billing about doing whatever they're doing. But the message the kids are getting is that thing in your hand. Yeah. More important than me. Uh, and, I, and by the way, I can't wait to get that thing in my own hand <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's the same idea. It's, just, it's really, really destructive. I wish people would. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I hate to preach because no one is guiltless in this, but really take a look at what you are doing here with, with your use of technology and uh, all the things which are to you seemingly urgent, but they are just not important at all. That's right. I mean, anytime that I do have to pull out a phone in the middle of a conversation, I would say 90 to 95% of the time, I apologize, because I just realized how rude that is. So my resolution, which I don't keep perfectly, um, is I will not hang out with if I have a dinner, my phone is on airplane mode, if something, you know, if I have a text coming in from family or something I have to take care of, I'll usually give a public apology at the dinner or something uh, along those lines. I was hanging out with several priests, maybe a week or two ago, and I was kind of kind of surprised that in the middle of a conversation, a, a priest was texting 
I wanted to say to him, I've done this before. Hey, I'll wait till you're done. And usually the person will say, oh, I don't mind. And I'll say, I do. <laughs> and then they're a little like offended that I said I do. And it's not that my, it's not like a narcissistic thing. I, I need all this attention at the moment. It's that if we're going to have a conversation, you just, you really can't do it in two directions. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm a single celibate diocesan hermit priest, so I don't have kids, but I can't even imagine what that tells kids if they're trying to talk to their parents and their parents are on the phone at the same time. This Dr. Anna Lemke, I don't know if you made it that far in the podcast, Mike, but she said that there are women who can't psychologically give birth in these OB units unless there's a phone in their hand. It's actually part of, it's like their uh, um, security blanket to even go through anything difficult in life is to have that phone in their hand. Yeah, I'll tell you what, how, I mean, it's just, how tragic is that? I mean, you just can't imagine, but it's, it is believable. I remember raising our own kids. Um, we did our best uh, to shield our kids from all sorts of things, from, you know, from the tech, from the general television and all that until, you know, we they got to a point where in the middle school years, the early teen years, where the pressure was just so intense, the peer pressure was so intense, they had to have phones. They had to have phones. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they, you know, would be outcasts. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember just as that's where we, as a family, that's what my wife and I felt like that was a tipping point. And it was after that, it was difficult to ever regain the kind of uh, inward family focus that we would have liked. It's hard. Yeah, and I've talked, I talked to a good traditional couple, maybe it's funny we're talking about this. We didn't plan a lot of what we we're going to talk off the air here, but maybe it was uh, six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, I was talking to a good young traditional couple raising a bunch of kids and they made the point, if we said no to any, like any and all technology, and I'm, I'm happy if people in the comments want to give some pushback on YouTube on this, but they made the point to me, if, if we lock them down entirely, they're going to fall on their faces and what they find in school buses and, you know, bad things uh, if we, if we tell them zero. So I kind of like this Gab phone idea. Gab's not paying me any money to say this on my podcast. It's just, I know more and more. And it's fine if there's Catholic families out there that are going to lock down even more than gab on their kids on stuff. But I like the idea of these gab phones that there's um, there's minimal or no Internet capability. I don't think you can send pictures. So that reduces the whole sext thing. You can send texts back and forth. You can get phone calls. But that sounds like the safest route to me for teenagers because there's minimal or no uh, Internet on these gab phones. You can text your friends. But it sounds like there's no pictures. You can still get phone calls from your parents. So I don't know. That might be a middle road. So you don't like pull the chain so hard that then they turn 18 and they can just rip the chain off and fall on their faces even harder. It's just one of the one of the uh, philosophies out there. Yeah, it's a it's a good. There's some reasoning behind that philosophy. I don't want to poo-poo it on the side of purity because anyone who's raised children knows knows how difficult it is and purity, you know, purism in that direction is really difficult to achieve. I mean, my, my wife and I, at one point, we, we, uh, we realized that we, we were not winning. <laughs> and if you're not winning, you're kind of losing. I think that, I think that young parents today are probably more on the front line of this. Uh, and they have better recommendations, like, like you said, like the gap phone idea. Uh, so I would defer to those thoughts. The only other thing I'd say is, it's maybe another way to think about it is instead of a strategy of denial, uh, how about a strategy of substitution? Mm. You know, where you're substituting different activities, you know, that are healthier and better than uh, 
than the kind of absorption and information. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you take kids camping and hiking and stuff and you, you hear these stories of them going through withdrawal symptoms, but right there proves that they need to turn the phones off and get out camping and hiking. And, and so that might be one of the things, you know, you talk about urgent versus important. Are people really prioritizing camping with their kids uh, ahead of like organizing the toolkit or whatever? Um, I have a good friend and she works with trafficked kids and Marines out in San Diego. She actually goes to the FSSP parish out in San Diego. She's a psychiatrist or psychologist. And, um, and so it's a quite a, so she's very, very highly trained in trauma. Again, dealing with formerly trafficked girls and Marines out in San Diego. And uh, I asked her maybe about a month ago, what's the best thing to increase happiness? Like what's the best thing to help someone beat happiness? And she goes, turning off social media. Now, most of my listeners think that has something to do with either bullying or pornography. She didn't mean anything as extreme as bullying or pornography. She just meant, once again, back to these dopamine things, it's actually leading to depression, even if you're not getting bullied, even if you're not finding, even if teenagers aren't finding bad things online, um, just the scrolling itself, uh, once you get off of it, there's a sadness, there's a mini depression. And then again, this is this, this downregulation of the dopamine. It takes more and more things to excite such a mind. We're not even talking six to the nine commandment things. It just takes more excitement where you go out to a forest, you go camping with your kids for a week. It's a totally different realm of excitement that they, that they encounter, you know, so I think a lot of times when we talk social media, people go to the really big issues, bullying and pornography. And that's good. All that has to be ended. But I don't think people even realize there is a slow cooking of their teenage brains, even if they're not finding dangerous stuff. I think that's exactly right. I would I'd like to continue on this idea of substitution because I'm yeah. the single most important activity anyone can do of any age Uh to combat the effects of, you know, this kind of social media disease we're talking about is physical activity. And, uh, and I mean, real physical activity. Um, I don't mean 20 minutes on the recumbent bike at the gym. Uh, <laughs> in the book. Uh, I mean, that physical activity that challenges yourself, that makes you gasp for breath because you're pushing, you're pushing yourself that hard that makes your muscles scream. Uh, and that is a far healthier way to access real dopamine, mm. uh, real, real valuable and uh, constructive uh, than the other ways uh, that you can get it, the ways that we touched on earlier. But yeah. I, can't tell, I can't tell people enough you have to be physically active. It's not a, it's not a choice. And, you know, Frank, I'll have to tell you, if you object to saying, well, that's just not for me, I'll have to tell you, well, I guess then disease and illness is for you if, if physical activity is not for you. That's you right. just have to do it. You just have to do it. Go ahead, Father. No, no. That's And one of the things Andrew Huberman said on a different podcast is accessing the right levels of adrenaline. One of the things he promote, propose, proposes is ice cold showers. Now, that's totally different from the fact he's been. A, I mean, people would hear that and say, well, he's been on Jocko. This is a this is a SEALs thing getting in cold, you know, cold ocean and buds next on Coronado Island. stuff. actually has nothing to do with SEALs and buds. They just at his neuroscientific level, he's found there are things you can do like these ice cold showers and like you said, exercise and stuff that's actually um, building up the right level of neurotransmitters in a, in a totally different way. And this is what's so amazing. I mean, a lot of this seems to line up with classic Catholic mortification. Now, obviously any parents out there 
I'm not telling you to go have your kids take like ice cold showers. If you live in a place like Denver, where the runoff is from the mountains. So I'm not, I'm not telling people to do that, but um, it is interesting. You and I were talking off the air about this. We don't want to collapse grace on a nature and say, Oh, well, the saints were just, they were happy because they found ice cold showers because of dopamine love. No, there was actually, we have to include grace in all of this. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying they were only happy because pain led to certain neurochemicals in their brain. But it is amazing that there are secular high pagans like Huberman and Lemke finding at the natural level, again, I'm not saying this is at the supernatural level, but it's amazing that they are slowly barking up the same tree uh, of what people in the middle ages would have found as far as um, a much healthier and happier lifestyle. People make fun of medieval Catholics thinking they were dumb and superstitious and unhealthy and unclean. And the more and more I listen to these uh, psychologists and all these people who are really involved in like um, meal training and diets and what we should what we should eat and do, it's like they are describing medieval Catholic life here and they don't even realize it. I, I, it's important, I think, though, to, to index your your comments and your approach to the time in which you live. I uh, my I know I espouse this really vigorous physical regime uh, because it's only by that I've found or the few things I've found that can actually counteract this other regime that is competing for your attention. And that's the intensive information-based regime that I've talked about. You live in, you, we all live in un, really unusual times, uh, extraordinary times of pressure. Uh, and I think it's mostly produced by too much information, too much erotic information as a practical sense, as a tactic. Uh, get busy physically, get really like more, much busier and more difficult than you thought you could ever do uh, as a, as a way to push hard in the other direction. And you do things like ultra, you do things like ultra marathons. What would, would your advice be the same for someone who maybe is in a wheelchair? Something tells me you would say, still say to that person, yeah, you can't run an ultra marathon, but you can still push yourself as hard as possible. Even an 80 year old listening to this podcast, you would say you can't, maybe you can't run and maybe they can, maybe you can't run an ultra marathon, but you can push yourself harder than you thought. Is that, I mean, barring cardiac issues, I mean, everyone else to talk to their doctors and stuff for stuff like that, but barring all the legal issues and medical issues, would that still be your advice to people who, who can't do what you can do, Mike? It certainly is in principle. Yes. I mean, I understand there are limitations. I'm not offering personal fitness advice. Everybody yeah. has their own thing. Um, however, I mean, I've got, I've got buddies who've had limbs blown off and eyes blown out and they are, uh, they're more intense and stronger today uh, than they were before the incident. And so there's a threshold for everybody. Uh, even as you said, a wheelchair bound can, can find outlets and it's not, and I want to stress, it's not because it's some sort of pagan cult of health and fitness. Here. Mm -hmm. Yes. We know it exists. It's out there. You know, it's, it's quite pervasive. It is to help you counteract at least on a natural level is this enormous uh, draw on your attention and your morale that, uh, that this information environment that we live in kind of inflicts on us. What would you say? I listened to uh, Jocko and Leif Babbins there. I did the two audiobooks: extreme ownership and dichotomy of leadership. And one of the things that extreme ownership helped me to do, I mean, you know, a lot of my story and my priesthood, um, I've definitely taken some rough hits and I've used some of those rough hits I've taken in my priesthood to kind of be excuses for lack of virtue. Like I would, um, you know, I would say, well, I got to have two shots of whiskey at night to fall asleep. 
um, because I've had a, it's been a hard go. And then as I listen, actually his book, um, extreme ownership has greatly reduced my alcohol intake because I realized I was using excuses as kind of give me a pass for virtue. I wasn't getting drunk, but it was like, um, I wasn't healthy and happy the next morning. And I, I use this as an excuse and listening to that book, extreme ownership made me realize, guess what? We've all been dealt some hard cards in life. Uh, we don't get to blame it on other people. And the problem with current Catholic theology, at least modernist, I should say modernist theology, you look at like Institute for Priestly Formation, a lot of these different groups are talking about the daddy wound. And um, ultimately, you can find a reason for your lack of virtue due to cards you've been dealt your whole life without ever really expecting the grace of Jesus Christ to get you over this hump. Um, now, again, Jocko and Leif, I mean, they didn't, it didn't sound like any Christian book, so I don't mean to be collapsing grace onto nature. You and I are practicing Catholics, we're both traditional Catholics, so we're not going to do that. But can you maybe dovetail the SEAL's understanding of stop your pity party? We've all been dealt hard cards in life, like you guys who've been, you know, you guys, you have friends who've lost eyes and limbs and stuff, and they still they still get after it. Um, how does that line up with traditional Catholic theology of getting over excuses in your life? Yeah, so I think what you're asking me to describe is here on a, on a natural level. What can we draw from these kind of practices on a natural level? Um, and how does that connect to, uh, to, to, this to the Catholic theology you're referring to? Uh, my, my first thought is, at least in the community I grew up in, the Serbian, the SEAL teams, um, I think one way we remove the focus from, oh, woe is me, is uh, by pushing the, the boundaries and the limits of just how much damage <laughs> you can impounding you can take. And you realize that I've been pushed to, uh, to the nth degree. Uh, just about anything short of that is easy. Hmm. Um, that, that's, that's one way to approach it. Not everyone might have access to that kind of thing. Everyone's at a different spot. Uh, I, I personally like like you. I just that is such a potent lie when you tell when we tell ourselves uh, I deserve this because I've been dealt a bad hand. Mm -hmm. It is, um, and it's a pure work of the devil to entertain that idea. And I think upon reflection, we all would admit that to ourselves, even though in the moment <laughs> we fool ourselves. We just yeah. do. Uh, Theologically, one of the things I know, like if you read the Summa by Saint Thomas Aquinas. He'll name X, Y, and Z as mortal sins and PQRNR as, as venial sins. The modernist is going to look at that and be like, well, technically they're not mortal if you have reduced culpability. I mean, there's there's a loophole why you're really not guilty for anything. When you look at classic traditional theology, even though Thomas Aquinas knew there was three requirements for a mortal sin, had to be grave, full knowledge, full consent of the world, uh, he knew that traditionally you put the emphasis on the objective, not the subjective. The objective, again, in this case of, of mortal sin, the gravity of matter was primary, and then the subjective cooperation was at a very, very, very distant second. Nowadays, in modernist theology, especially moral theology, it's the opposite. Everyone wants to know what you knew, what excuses you have, what daddy wounds you have, and then it probably wasn't a mortal sin. And what I love about traditional theology is, again, Thomas Aquinas he knew it had to be full knowledge and focus on will. But the fact he put the emphasis on the objective, he put the objective emphasis on, okay, this is grave matter. Even though that just sounds like kind of harsh to us modernists, 
there's a great freedom in that to just say, I don't have to play the subjective card my whole life. This is the objective goal. This is what I need to do with my life. And I don't get to give myself a pass anymore. So one of the things I noticed doing this audiobook of extreme ownership, it really lines up with traditional theology that puts the objective far ahead of the subjective. Um, I don't know if you noticed that when you, because you're a convert to Catholicism, but you entered right into tradition. So I don't know if you were really as affected by modernist moral theology as I was. I definitely appreciated the emphasis on objective. Another way of putting it in, in, in practical terms is you focus on results, not how hard you tried, but you're focused on results. That's, yeah. a, that's a favorite thing we, we will tell corporate leaders as well. And it all, it all sounds good and everyone loves the idea. I don't think they always buy it and practice it, but neither do, you know, it's because it's hard. Uh, so the, the, the objective outcome is important. It's good to emphasize that. I agree. It might be worse, you know, from a theological point of view, Father, just there is the idea of, 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 of mitigated culpability based mm -hmm. on attention. Uh, and so we can't say that it's a black and white calculation always. It's a matter of emphasis, I think. Emphasis, yeah. And that's what I that's what I meant is that Thomas Aquinas recognized it, but the objective was was emphasized. Um, wh why is it that a lot of I mean, most most people in life want to say, I gave it my best shot. I got an A plus for effort. The SEAL teams never seem to be content with that. I mean, you guys saw if you didn't meet the objectives, it was a loss. It didn't mean if I mean, it wasn't good enough if everyone on your task unit tried their best. If you don't accomplish it, it's seen as a failure. Why, why and how did that get established into the brains of the guys on the teams? It's a great question, but it is definitely hardcore results oriented. I, uh, I remember distinctly a, a hostage rescue mission that we conducted once uh, in Afghanistan in which the hostage was killed. So by our measure, uh, we did everything right. It was a re really difficult situation. We traveled long distance. There was a night parachute infiltration uh helicopters were operating at the limits of their endurance etc cetera, etc cetera. intelligence was bad we got there too late the hostage was killed as far as our chain of command was concerned we did it was great we did just superhuman just getting there was a superhuman task and our own internal debrief it was bloody and painful we analyzed all the ways in which we failed and the hostage was killed hmm. uh, that is you know that is just our culture it's just uh it's awesome yeah it's not that he was killed. It's awesome that you guys look at, see, this is what I'm saying. The objective ahead of the subjective here. Yeah, it's a, it's a rigorous standard, but as you said, you know, with modern theology, I think the alternative it's intolerable. You can't, you can't operate according to a subjective standard. You have to hold yourself to rigorous results. And see, that's how I want to end every day as a priest. I don't want to say I had an A plus for effort. I want to say I had an A plus in result. And I'm not promote, I'm not, my enemies are going to say that's Pelagianism, but I'm not promoting Pelagianism. I'm talking about cooperating with grace, but the pendulum has, has gone far to the other side of pride on success to the other side of constant excuses. So I don't know. I think personally in my life, I need to move from the excuses, A plus for effort to I need to see some real results and virtue at this point. And that's that's why I love listening to these SEAL team books and talking to you to you about this, because you guys are result oriented, not a plus for effort oriented. <laughs> there comes a point we have to we, we want to see that um, we're cooperating with grace in our life. 
you know, a good example is, but to, um, to kind of frame it though, and make sure you frame your challenge right is, um, pray the rosary every day. It yeah. wasn't, it, it doesn't, it didn't say pray well every day. It didn't say pray on your knees and, and wrapped devotion every day. It just said pray the rosary every day. Yeah. So let's just take it. You're at the end of a very hard day, a long day of travel. It's half, you know, quarter till one in the morning. You got to go to bed, but you're going to say the rosary. And of course, it's not a very good one. Did you, um, what were your objective results? Uh, met. They were met. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they were met. But it's important to understand the parameters under which you're operating. Sure. You know? I agree. And you don't want to just say, uh, my goal every day is the five decades of the rosary. And, but I did my best and happened three of those, three of those days I got five decades. It's like, no, I've, I know I've done the math, Mike. It's 1.38% of your day to do five decades of the rosary. So if you can't do 1.38% of the day, then A plus for effort's not enough. We should be able to do at least five decades a day. <laughs> That's let's, let's, let's make that results oriented instead of effort oriented, you know? No, it's a great, we talk about results. I mean, that's a, at least in my life, that's a clear cut definition of these are the results required uh, on all the atmospherics are nice, but they're secondary. That's right. Yeah. If you can get on your knees, great. But if the goal is to get the rosary done, uh, you know, most of my rosaries are done in the car. Um, I did get my, I got 15 in today, but it was all on bike rides. It wasn't sitting on my knees, but it was, it was all on bike rides that I got 15 in and, and that wasn't the, I wasn't paying attention to probably as well as I would if I were in my hermitage here, but objective met, you know, and uh, any closing thoughts on just basic Catholic daily leadership for the fathers and mothers listening out there? Well, I'll just go back to this. There's a million ways we can fool ourselves, distract ourselves. You know, when you're doing it, don't do it. Do the hard thing, do the hard thing uh, and train your kid. If you can't do it on day one and train yourself to do it consistently, it's the only way. You know, and into every day there must be some some hardship and suffering. If life's not going to inflict it on you, then you got to inflict it on yourself in many ways. And everyone's so excited at the life of seals, but one of the things that's lost is at least when we we you know when we watch YouTube videos of buds and special operations and hostage situations, but the consistency of virtue in their life, again, even if it's not supernatural virtue, even if it's just natural virtue, consistency is a word that just keeps coming up really in the past two weeks of my life, it's been almost, it must be a gift from the Holy spirit. How many times the word consistency has been coming up in my life. Um, any last thoughts on what makes a seal along the lines of consistency in their tasks, virtue, whatever, whatever noun you want to use. I think the consistency and virtue you're referring to is probably a long thing, like along natural lines. So, you know, fitness and training and that kind of stuff. It's not magic. Uh, it doesn't come to you like a, like a, kind of St. Paul conversion. It is a function of, of training and habits. Uh, and there's just no easy shortcut to it. Um, yeah. And everybody starts somewhere. As long as you're moving, moving the needle, so to speak, on uh, increasing, you know, your your commitment and habits and consistency and all virtuous habits, then I think uh, I think you're doing okay. One of my favorite saints is St. Peter Claver. He baptized at least, there's different numbers, but at least 300,000 well, Peter Claver's from Spain. He went to Colombia. He met black slaves getting just slid, literally slid off the boats from Africa and um, usually nursed him back to health right there in front of it with oranges, lemons, honey, cookies, cakes. It's horrible to his own body, but he took care of the slaves sliding off of these boats. 
He baptized 300,000 of them. He has miracles chalked up to him, including raising the dead, not chalked up. He literally did raise the dead, um, numerous miracles his whole life. But if you read the gold standard book on his life by Val Tierra, it's a 300 page book. I'd recommend it to all listeners. Um, even though he's one of those saints that is was absolutely extraordinary in mortification, he wore like a crown of thorns and whipped himself at night, meditating on the passion all night, baptized 300,000 um, slaves. He went all over north, the northern part of South America to, to, to take care of his converts. Some people criticize him that he didn't take care of catechesis, but he would travel all over the northern part of South, Af South America to take care of his converts. But if you read that book, one of the things that repeatedly comes up is how good he was at the regular, boring, virtuous parts of being a Jesuit in the 17th or 18th century in, in South America. And um, it's kind of a kind of the supernatural version of a seal that, yeah, he's got all the really cool, amazing miracles and 300,000 bapt baptisms and stuff. But all of that was against the backdrop of an extremely boring, hard life. Yeah, that's right. And I, I don't even know if I would use the word boring because boring, boring again is where your threshold is. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's, uh, there's just no way around it. You just, I mean, it's, uh, as it just goes back to the very beginning of this podcast. It's just, you're, you're living, we are living in an illusion of, of, a, of just a false life and a false reality. If our life is, is based on, uh, on, on the information overloading, it's life is in a, it's a different realm, as you pointed out. Um, yeah, my, and you've, you, I'm glad you corrected me twice on boredom. Dr. Peter Crave taught me at Boston College, and he actually said, boredom is a new invention. It's You wouldn't hear that. They didn't even, Peter Crave claims they didn't even have that word in ancient languages. Um, maybe it crept in in medieval times, but um, his point is that ancient languages didn't even have the word boredom because it's a truly new phenomenon in world history. And anytime you look at our current culture, just circling the drain that's about to get flushed down the toilet, and there's something new like boredom. You have to assume it's it's not good that we have boredom. Um, how is it possible that a, a culture like ours that's just constantly stimulated would be the culture that lives in boredom? And that's it's exactly like you said. It has to be due to the subjective threshold of the person who's describing themselves as bored. Because 2,000 years ago, nobody described themselves as bored. I can't imagine it. Um, but anyway, that's just, you know, it's just my opinion, my take on, uh, on the way people well, Why do you think that is? Why do you think 2,000 years ago, no one would ever say they were bored? And then we'll close with, I already said we're going to close. We're going to close with this one. Why do you think 2,000 years ago, no one described themselves as bored? Well, if that's true, <laughs> and I suspect it is, I, suspect it is, I just, uh, I think because they're, the ability to take in information was limited in many ways to uh, to their senses, mm -hmm. to, to their you know, practical what was put in front of them. That hasn't changed. Uh, what has changed is a sort of abstract idea of, uh, of information which comes over the top of all that and uh, and probably hits different parts of your brain, emotions, etc. I don't know, Father. It's uh, you know, it's, makes sense. No, I, I'll sign on that. Uh, that makes perfect sense to me. I'll I agree, Mike. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we kind of put this to podcast together without a lot of prep, but uh, I learned a lot from you as I always do. So thanks for, uh, thanks for your time, Mike. All right. My pleasure, Father. God bless you.